do not turn to the book of Leviticus. Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, New Testament, close to the back end of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews. And this morning, we want to look at verses 1 and 2 of our book. We'll be in the book of Hebrews for half of this year, Lord willing, from now until the end of June is the plan. And we're looking forward to what God has for us from this fantastic book here in the New Testament. I hope as we walk through, it'll become more clear to you why we went through the book of Leviticus last year, because a knowledge of and appreciation for the book of Leviticus is necessary to fully understand and appreciate the book of Hebrews. Perhaps among all of the New Testament letters, or in this case, a sort of letter slash sermon, uh, this has the most Old Testament references and allusions. And so it is very necessary to understand the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and all that that means in order to fully appreciate what is going on here in the book of Hebrews. I also feel the weight of this sermon series this year because I believe that perhaps this could be one of the most important and vital and relevant sermon series that Grace Baptist is going to undertake in quite some time because of the audience that was, that the book of Hebrews, the the sermon to, to the Hebrews was originally intended for, I think, very well matches our current context. So we do not know who wrote the book of Hebrews, the letter slash sermon to the Hebrews. Hebrews is not in the title in the original languages, but it becomes quite apparent from the letter slash sermon that it is written to a group of Jews. The best guess that we have, according to chapter 13, is that these are Jewish individuals that are in the city of Rome and they are facing persecution. They have faced persecution and will face even more persecution in just a few years from the writing of this letter. As we know from our time going through the book of Romans, the emperor Claudius had expelled all Jews, including Jewish Christians, from the city of Rome in AD 49. And we believe this book is written in the uh, early to mid 60s, So about 64, 65 AD, the book to the letter or the sermon to the uh, Hebrews is written. This is after Claudius's persecution and his dispensing of the Jews, his exiling of the Jews. The Jews have been allowed back into the city of Rome, again, as we remember from our time in the book of Romans. And yet the new emperor who is uh, on the throne, so to speak, is Nero. And if we know anything from our history, we realize that Nero's persecution of the Christians is going to be severe indeed. We do not believe that has already happened because in chapter 12, the author is going to say, you have not yet resisted unto blood, but martyrdom is on the horizon. So why is it important that this letter slash sermon was delivered to this group of people facing these circumstances? Why is that important for us? I think for two reasons. The main theme of the book is that Jesus Christ is superior to everything. And we're going to see that right out of the gate. 
These individuals are questioning whether their allegiance to Jesus is worth it. Some have left everything to follow him. They're beginning to wonder, is that really worth it in light of what I have given up or in light of what is to come? Is Jesus truly worth worshiping? Is he truly worthy? Is he truly worth giving up everything for? And this question is going to be answered in the book of Hebrews, perhaps like no other New Testament book. And that's the theme that runs throughout the entire letter slash sermon. I think this is a question that we all need to ask and answer every single day. And for us, at least not yet, it is not because of persecution or hardship necessarily that we are questioning whether we want to follow Jesus with everything that we have and with all that we are. More often than not, it is a more subtle idol, and it is the idol of comfort. Provided that things are going the way we want them to go, provided that things are happening the way we want them to happen, provided that we have enough in the bank account, provided that we have things the way that we like them to be, provided that we are comfortable, then, if it's not too great a sacrifice, if it doesn't put us out too much, if it doesn't cost us a whole lot, we may think about giving something to God. We may consider serving him in some way. And so the question consistently is, is Jesus worth more than anything else? Is Jesus actually superior, as is the title for this morning, to everything else? And do our lives reflect that? Could someone who doesn't know us very well, and also people that do know us very well, both testify that it is very evident to us they were evident to them that our lives are all about Jesus. It doesn't have to be bold, doesn't have to be brash, doesn't have to be loud, but is it clear and easily recognizable that we are living as if Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords? I recently read a book authored by Jeff Christofferson. He's the new president of the CNBC in Canada called Once You See, and it's a novel. It's written in a story form, but it is fascinating how these three main stories are woven together in this novel, and one part of those stories is a believer from a country that does not allow Christianity, in fact, does not allow anything other than the, war, the religion that is a part of that nation, and so this character in this novel loses his sister and many of his fellow Christians. They are shot to death in front of him. He is spared because his captors want more out of him when they don't get it. He believes he will also be executed. God saves his life. He comes to North America and what he finds here shocks him. Because in a continent where Christianity is free to be believed and practiced, it is not being practiced fully as it ought to be. 
that as Jeff pointed out in one of his sessions in Halifax, it's fascinating what happened over these last few years. Christians are built for suffering, or we should be. Christians are made for pain and hardship. Christians are wired for plagues and pandemics. Again, we need our history. When plagues and pandemics were throughout Rome, where if you had even an indication that you were ill, you were abandoned by family and friends, lest you infect them. It was Christians that were on the front lines, adopting sick individuals to their own detriment and at their own peril to save them. It was Christians in Rome that took abandoned infants off of garbage piles and brought them into their home to raise as if they were their own. It was Christians during the bubonic plague. It was Christians during cholera. It was Christians that were the forefront of saying, I've already sacrificed my life. It's already Jesus's. So we're not going to be foolish. We're not going to be rash and walk around asking people to cough on us. It's not what we are saying. But we are at the front lines of saying, if you are sick, if you are in need, we're here to help. That's what Christians do, except this time. For whatever reason, broadly speaking, Christendom in North America was faced with an opportunity to do what Christians have always done, and instead of being outward focused, instead of doing what Christians are supposed to do, they did the exact opposite. They were inward focused, and instead of asking, how can I glorify Jesus and show him to be superior and preeminent, they asked, how can I exercise my rights? It's not just sad, it's potentially catastrophic for those who do not name the name of Christ. Unless we didn't know this, when Jesus Christ saved you, you gave up your rights. Because you were dead, I was dead. And God gave me life and gave you life if you are in him this morning. And so we owe everything to him. And the idea of someone who is a blood-bought sinner standing up and saying, but what about me, just doesn't really make any sense. Because it's not about us. It's about him. But we made this last little stretch about us, broadly speaking. And so the book of Hebrews is written to those who worship at the altar of comfort. But mark this, the book of Hebrews is also written to individuals who have faced and will yet face persecution, actual persecution, for what they hold dear, for the truths of God and his word. And I feel it is our duty as your elders and leaders to prepare you for what is coming. And what is coming is not a view of Christianity that is overwhelmingly positive, which is what we have been used to. What we've been used to in our culture is that everyone in our culture, Christian or non, holds Christianity in high regard. And that is not the case and has not been the case for quite some time. The view of Christianity 
turned to indifference. If you want to be a Christian, do your thing, just don't bother me. But what is here and what is uh, advancing and expanding is a overwhelmingly negative view of Christianity. That those in our culture that are not Christian do not view Christianity with a positive outlook or with indifference, but they view Christianity as being dangerous. And the things that we believe are being, have been, and will continue to be challenged in our culture, in our society, and attempts have been and will continue to be made to silence the truth, to shame the truth, to cause us to retreat, to cause us to meet like this, or maybe not meet like this. People have and will continue to lose their jobs and their careers for standing for truth. It's not getting easier to hold Jesus as superior. It's getting more difficult. And yet we ought to be built for that. Because the part of us that amplifies us, the part of us that wants to make ourselves God died the day or should have died the day that Jesus died for us and made that applicable to us. We died that day, or a part of us did, as Paul will say in Galatians 2.20. But if there still remains any part of us that is about us, when our allegiance to Christ is challenged, and it has been and will be increasingly so as we move forward, there's going to be new temptations. Temptation just to say nothing. Temptation to deny Christ, as his servant Peter did. Temptation for the sake of comfort and the sake of not making a fuss to just back away and back down. There might even be a temptation to leave off Christianity itself. And it is this temptation that the recipients of this letter were facing. Their lives had been and would be interrupted and disrupted. And the preacher, the letter writer, wants to remind them and encourage them with this reality above all else. Jesus is superior to everything and following him is worth it. So let's dive into our text this morning, verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This is the word of God. It should be enough to say that because of who God is, we ought to worship him. It should be enough to say because he is superior to all things, having spoken all things into existence, that it should just be reasonable for us who believe in him through Christ by the Spirit 
based on his superiority as far as his omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence, that we should bow the knee to him. But note, that is not the first reality given by the author or the preacher, the first argument for why we should bow to Christ. The first argument that he starts with is because of God's superior love to us. Is God superior in his power? Yes. Is he superior in his knowledge? Yes. Is he superior in his majesty and his glory? Absolutely. But what is interesting is the author of the letter to the Jews, to the Hebrews, shares God's superior love. And there's at least five things that I want us to see from verses 1 and 2a. The main point of verse 1 and 2 is that God spoke. I don't know if we've taken time recently to thank God for how he has reached out to us. See, we typically think that we're brilliant. We know best. We're smarter than the average person. We're more talented than the average person. We know what's going on. We've figured things out. We've read the right blogs and we follow the right podcasts. And we've got a handle on things. And so when it comes to God, especially if we've had a relationship with him for a while, we can suddenly begin to think that the relationship that we have with God is because we figured it out. We were born into the right family and we went to the right church and we read the right version of the right Bible and we did the right things and we behaved in the right way and we followed the right rules. And so our salvation then, our relationship with God is because we ascended and nothing could be further from the truth. The only way that we have a relationship with God is because he descended. We can see his creation and find out some things about who he is by what he has made. But similarly, if you looked at a piece of woodworking or a painting that somebody constructed or a photo exhibit or a house that somebody built, you might be able to know a few things about that individual, but you don't know that individual unless you speak to them and they speak to you. And so we are limited in our knowledge of God based purely on what he has made. But thanks be to God that he spoke. He talked to us. He condescended to us. He got down on our level and spoke to us in language that we understand. The author of this sermon letter to this group of Jews that are under persecution is, do not forget that God spoke. God loves you. So much that he introduced himself to you, without which you would not know him or even care. But notice that God spoke consistently. How does the verse begin? Long ago. God not only spoke, but he has been speaking. For millennia, God has spoken. I'm not sure how it goes in your house, but I'm quite sure based on my experience that it's similar to yours, that as parents and even grandparents, it seems by times you say the same thing a lot of times. What's one of our favorite phrases? I've told you 
a million times. Now, for those that are very analytical amongst our children, they may have kept count, and it's not quite that many, but it feels that way, does it not? How often has God said the same thing to people who have sinned in the same way? How long has God had patience with us, we who are infinitely undeserving of it? God spoke. He spoke at the beginning. He spoke all things into existence. He spoke consistently to Adam and Eve. It tells us that even after the fall, we're reminded that God came down to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the garden. He was a speaking God from the very beginning. And he has spoken since the beginning up until now. He continues to speak. He didn't just speak once. He speaks consistently. And notice he speaks repeatedly at many times. At times when things were the darkest, at times when his words were needed the most, God spoke. We just finished our former Bible reading plan, the Robert Murray Shane Bible reading plan in 2 Chronicles. And as we've been walking through over the last couple of weeks, we are consistently reminded of the kings and how they did not listen to God despite the captivity of their uh, brothers and sisters to the north and Israel to Assyria. And they are finally taken into captivity by Babylon, but interspersed even in their story of the kings, it says, because this king did not listen to the prophet so-and-so, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, many others. God spoke through dreams and visions. He spoke uh, through prophets, but he repeatedly speaks to his people. You keep speaking to your children, I hope. I hope you don't give them a piece of instruction and then I'm done. My job here is complete. But I hope out of love for your children and grandchildren, you speak consistently and repeatedly. As someone has said, just when you're tired of saying something, people are just starting to listen. And it can feel that way sometimes as a preacher. But out of love for those that we serve, we speak. We don't just speak once, but we speak consistently over time, and we speak repeatedly in many different times. And then we speak in many different ways. God has spoken variously. He chose many different methods to speak. He spoke directly to Moses, to Adam and Eve. He spoke through the prophets. He spoke through dreams and visions. He spoke through a donkey. God used many different ways to speak. And what a, what a beautiful, again, expression of God's love. That in the ways that we needed to hear, God spoke. God does not just speak in one way, but he takes into consideration the individual receiving his words and speaks in a way that they can understand and hear. Take some time, if you would, and walk through the times where Jesus interacts with people face to face in the Gospels. And you will note that he never speaks the same way twice. To someone who is rich, he speaks to their idol of riches. Go, sell all that you have, come follow me. 
to individuals struggling with race relations, he speaks into that world to them, the Syrophoenician woman. To those needing a word of comfort, he speaks comfort. To those needing a word of rebuke, he speaks rebuke. But he speaks in a way that they understand, and he speaks using many different forms, parables, stories, illustrations. He speaks into the world of agriculture because it's the world they understand. A sower went forth to sow. This is things that they would understand. Thanks be to God that he loves us enough to speak in ways that we understand. If we do not obey, the fault is never his. But notice in the first part of verse 2, he has spoken fully and finally. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The greatest revelation of God, the greatest word of God is the capital W word of God, John 1, 1 and following, Jesus Christ the righteous. What does perfection look like? Jesus Christ. What does the perfect human look like? Jesus Christ. What does God look like in human form? Jesus Christ. Jesus is an, in, an enfleshed message from God. A message that we can best understand. Who also speaks words to us that we can understand. What love God has. That he speaks, speaks consistently, repeatedly and variously and then speaks fully and finally through Jesus Christ. The final revelation from God. The Old Testament points to him and the New Testament reminds us of him and he is the focus of all of that as he himself says in Luke 24. All of the scripture speaks of me, Jesus says. God's superior love. And notice then in the second part of verse 2 that Jesus Christ is the superior Lord. First of all, he is the heir of all things. God appointed him the heir of all things. Jesus himself will make reference to this in Matthew 28 where he says, All power and authority is given to me. Everything already was Christ's. God grants him heir, the inheritance of everything. It's his. And so for those that are worshiping at the altar of comfort, the idol of their own comfort, whether that's fame or whether that is pleasure or whether that is money, they are scrabbling about for a bit of this life that does not last and is not ultimately theirs. As Job says, we came into this world with nothing and we will leave it with the same. It's all Christ's. It's all his. And then he closes off verse 2 by saying, through whom also he created the world. He is the creator of all things. And so all things are also his because he made them all. All things are created through Christ. Without him, nothing was made that was made. He is the heir of all things and the creator of all things. And so the question for this morning as we begin this new year of 2023 the question for every day in this new year and for the rest of our lives, the question for the rest of our look in the book of Hebrews, and the question for any time we interact with God's word and with anything is, 
Do we have a superior love for Christ? Do we love God above all else? For those that know us well, and even those that don't know us well, would they be able to clearly see and quickly see that Jesus is the one we love above all else? Do we love our reputation more? Do we love our own comfort more? Do we love our stuff more? Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Your passion, your time, your attention, your love will be with what you treasure. And so the question is, do we actually treasure Christ above all things? And it's a question that we better answer and better answer soon because it is a question that is going to be challenged. For some, even in our own congregation, it's already been challenged. But it's going to be challenged more. You're going to be asked at your workplace to sign a document that you do not believe you can sign in good conscience. And you're going to be faced with a choice. Do I sign this document to keep my job? Or do I refuse to sign it and potentially lose my job and even my career? You are going to be asked, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus superior? Is his love for us, his creation of us and his recreation of us in Christ by his spirit, is that worth our love for him? Even if and especially if it costs us everything. And that question is no longer merely academic. That question has been real and will become even more real for us as we continue to move forward into 2023 and beyond. Our love for Christ is being challenged. But that's not a bad thing in my estimation. That's a good thing. Because we need to ask that question. It needs to point us back to his love for us that he gave everything for us. He became one of us, and we've just been celebrating. And then he gave his life for us on the cross. But not only that, bore on himself, in himself, the wrath of God, the just wrath of God against sin for us. Rose again to life from the grave. Ascended on high where he ever lives to make intercession for us. Christ loves you more than you could possibly fathom. Do we love him in return? Do we love God above everything else? My prayer is that we do as a church family. And my prayer is that we do now because that is going to be challenged as we continue to move forward. Let's look to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, what an encouraging letter slash sermon that the author of this letter slash sermon wrote to this group of Jewish believers who had faced and were going to face even more persecution for following you. And the question they're asking is, is it worth it? 
the old way of living, although there was some persecution involved there, it was less than this, and maybe it's just easier to fade into the background, not stand out, not rock the boat, and just go back to the old ways. Just fit in, go with the crowd. Maybe following Jesus isn't worth it. And so the author of this letter slash sermon puts pen to paper to say to this group of individuals, no, Jesus is worth it. More than you would ever know. He is superior to everything. He's superior to the law. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to angels. He's superior to Joshua. He's superior to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's superior to everything. He is worth it. So worth it. Jesus himself says, no one who has left father, mother, brothers and sisters, houses, lands, stuff for my sake will not only have eternal life, but in this life a hundredfold of those very things. Is the family sitting around us right now and watching online and connected with us in various ways, are they more family to us than even our blood relatives? Father, do we love you because you first loved us? We have no excuse. We have your word. We have your Holy Spirit. We have your church. We have had for centuries freedom to do so, to publicly worship And yet that is being challenged. Will we winsomely, lovingly, kindly, but truthfully rise to that challenge, Father? And will we say, Jesus Christ is my all in all. He is my everything. We pray that is the case in Jesus' name. Amen.